You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. John Curry, thank you so much for joining. Oh, no worries. Pleasure uh, pleasure to be on here. It is great to have you. I uh, met you over the summer down at a conference in South Beach, certainly worse places to be. And as the cold weather comes upon us, uh, I miss the, the warm embrace of uh, of South Florida. You are the co-founder and CEO of Satanta Development Capital, a really a residential development capital firm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Did I did I get did I nail the name Satanta? You did, Satanta. Yeah. Um that's uh you know I, I tried to pick a, a name that was uh, that was Irish. Um as you can sort of tell from the accent, uh, not a native. Um but also try to get something that Americans can actually pronounce. So We've had a few people calling us Santana, which, you know, sadly, not a, not a legendary guitarist, but Satanta, that's got it. You nailed it. I mean, he would be a good addition at the company Christmas party, though. Santana comes to play at the oh, Satanta Christmas party. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to, you know, get sort of black magic woman going there, you know, it'll be, uh, be perfect. You know, okay. And I guess obviously finish with smooth. So it'll be, you know, something, something for everybody. We have just make sure I get an invite. This is uh this is an idea in the making. Uh, especially in the age of tech companies and startups, I feel like I always run across awful sounding names with ridiculous stories, but your firm is an exception. I, I like the name. It's a cool sounding name, but there's also a legitimately <laughs> interesting story behind it. Was it, I did some Wikipedia digging and the origin is, is an Irish warrior. Yes. So, uh, Satanta is the, the sort of the birth name given to an Irish folk hero. So it's a story called the Tom, the, the cattle raid of Cooley, and it's a couple of thousand years old. So it's the same as sort of the Odyssey around that same sort of time. And it's a, a story that get, gets told. So for example, my, uh, as I said, I'm uh, from, from Ireland originally. My, my grandfather, um, used to tell the story. Um, and we you know, we sort of gather around, uh, you know, at a fire down at the local pub, McCluskey's, uh, and you know we would uh, he would tell it over like four or five nights, and you know never never the same. <laughs> you know, it's a story story always varied, but it always had sort of key elements. And one of them is the the story of this uh, child, uh, sort of the Achilles, sort of uh, born with supernatural powers and strength, and it's the story of how Satanta then becomes Kuholin, which is our you know, the, the, the lead hero in the story. So it's a, you know, again, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating story where it sort of overlapped with what we do is uh, my co-founder, um, Robert Davenport, uh, who's, you know, sort of a lot of the, you know, uh, brains behind or the, uh, for what we do. And um, we were, came together to form this platform and I was looking for something that had a Irish name. And um, so, um, and I like the name Satanta and I like that, that story. Um, and then the, the other main principal character in that story is, is Queen Maeve, and uh, Rob's uh, youngest daughter is named Maeve. And uh, being opportunistic, I was like, you know what? We could call it Satanta, and it'll be you know Irish for me and Maeve for you, and you know sort of kill two birds. So I, I took advantage of uh, of uh, you know of Rob's goodwill to uh, to you know get an Irish name. I love it. I love it. So let's dive right into it. You and I chatted a little bit prior and I have kind of a a genuine knowledge gap in a lot of this. Uh, I think, you know, I kind of cut my teeth in the private lending space, building out a mortgage broker program uh, for Lean One Capital. And every once in a while, we would get a deal that would come in the door that would just be completely outside of our box that we couldn't do anything with, just not something we touched. We do, and we did, we do new construction, right? Ground up, kind of foundation up, the vertical piece of it. But uh, what was always crazy to me is how hard it was to find a financing option for people who came to us. We're like, hey, we're, we're good if you have property that is fully platted, utilities are run, everything's good to go, it's pristine, now we need to go up need to actually build the structure. Everything before that, it seemed like there was a financing dead zone. Uh, I would talk with some folks who had been in the space for double digit years. Uh, hey, do you have an outlet for this? Do you know somebody in Atlanta and Southern California? Every market, it was kind of the same. It was like, ah, you know, we, we know that this gets financed somehow because people aren't doing all this cash, but we don't really know anybody who does it. So I give that backstory to say, in my mind, the the picture of foundation up, I understand, I know it well, 
But everything before that is kind of a black mystery box. So I guess start off, enlighten me. Why is it such a unicorn? Why is land A&D such a unicorn? It's a it's an excellent question, and the, and the short answer is it shouldn't. Um, but you know, it's you know the the often told joke in our industry is that you know land is a four letter word, and it just scares people, and it scares people because of you know a couple of things, and we can't discount oh seven oh eight, and you know I'll I'll try and be short. But I could I could go on and on about this as as uh, our employees can tell you I, I do on a daily basis, but. You know, 0708 is one of the greatest uh, misremembered uh, crises. Uh, it's sort of seen as a we overdeveloped land, we overbuilt homes, which which we did, but that's what our industry does. And I'll let you in on a little secret: we're going to do it again. We will overbuild. We always overbuild. We've overbuilt in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 90s, and we haven't overbuilt yet, only because of the sort of misremembering of 0708. But that's normal. What harmed things in 0708 was Wall Street and sort of the financial instruments that were were used there. So what you ended up having was this credit crunch that just both led to a, a huge bubble and sort of fed into it, but then also through you know, various administrations and very various uh, policies just decimated the industry, just hollowed out developer underclass so that's a very large part of it but then there's also there's always been traditional uh, skepticism towards land and the the part that makes me laugh is you know it's very you know it's it's simple to get plenty of fix and flip lenders as you guys mm-hmm. know well you know obviously Lima one you know the, one of the leading groups in both that and, and vertical but there's a lot of a lot of competition and you know there's uh you know if you actually have a finished loss you know, there's a lot of competition for getting that vertical uh, side of things. And when you sort of pivot into build for rent, there's lots and lots of capital for stabilized homes. And on the for sale side, you know, mortgage rates, while they're ticking up slightly, are still at levels, you know, uh, you know, you know unbelievably low levels, you know, compared to historic norms. So every aspect of housing has low rates, lots of competition. And then the most important part of housing is land. Yeah. You cannot build on cannot build without land and yet somehow we're the sort of the ugly stepchild that nobody really wants to to address and the when i push back on people the number one thing i get told is well you know land it's it's very illiquid you know if 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 nobody wants to buy it it's very it's very hard to do anything with it and you know the two sort of thoughts to that is one anything is illiquid if nobody wants to buy it so it doesn't you know it doesn't matter you know what asset class you have if nobody wants to buy it it's a liquid. But secondly, compared to a office building that could be empty or a retail strip mall that could be empty, land is land. Mm-hmm. And I can I can have a picnic on it. I can graze uh, animals on it. I can grow something on it. I can put in for planning for a different type of, of use. It, so what's bizarre is I sort of see what people say about, oh, land, it's illiquid, and there's nothing else you can do with it. And I'm like, it's no more illiquid than anything else, and anything the maintenance of it and the many different uses I can use for it means that, quite frankly, I'd rather have $100 million invested in land than I would in office. And in fact, I do. Yeah. I, what As you're describing this to me, I, I have like a left brain, right brain thing going on. Part of me, like seven years in this space, uh, like what you're saying rationally makes sense. I understand it. And I'm like, yeah, of course, land is the basis of everything, no matter what type of property, like structure sits on top of it, or maybe nothing sits on top of it. Uh, maybe it's farmland. Like you said, that's the one side. And it's like, ah, oh, it makes complete sense. And then the other side is this deep, dark Pandora's box of scaredness. And like, I don't know, this land, I don't know, I don't know. It's just that it like conditioned in the industry, like you said, to be this, uh, to steal your phrase, like a scary little stepchild that nobody wants to touch. So how do you, how do you break into it? How do you convince, and I'm not entirely, um, you know, uh, how do you start a business on the land development side of the fence? This ultra niche, people see it and run. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. That's actually the most important thing to understand about our platform is to understand our origins. And as I said, my, my co-founder, um, Rob Davenport, is instrumental in that story. So I sort of, you know, I was in Ireland and I was thinking, what did America need more of? So I became a lawyer. 
and <laughs> you know was over here doing uh, you know real estate transactions. And in 07, 08, um, mainly commercial, but you know as we all did, we sort of pivoted to workout opportunity, um, and that led to a lot of land land foreclosures. Working at that as well as sort of you know um, opportunities that came from that. Mm-hmm. And my partner Rob, you know, he was more on the hands-on development, working for developers, and then obviously through a seven oh eight, also sort of pivoted to helping banks, helping equity shops. And we overlapped at a private equity group, and that's very important because what it meant was we were both at a private equity group that at a time when there was very little money in this space, that was betting on the fact that you know land development and home building was here to stay. Right. And that there was a place for it, and that you know we you know, we could understand it. So we we learned a lot of stuff there. And on the equity side, you know, as the as the attorney, I was tasked with you know telling our sponsors, you know, because the equity doesn't like to share, right? So the equity we want to put out as much money as possible and as little debt on, on it. So you know, I would be I would get. Uh, loan applications from our borrowers who say, well, what if we put like 30% on or 40% on anything so that we don't have to, to pay our equity, you know, 20, 30% uh, returns. And, you know, I was told in a, in a non-adversarial way, it's like, let's just see if we could just not do this. And it was very easy to say no to. I would contact the borrowers going, have you read this term sheet? These terms are awful. The, the rate's too high. If you sneeze incorrectly, you lose the land. Like it's, it's the hardest of hard money. Yeah. And that process did two things for us. One is we were already doing 90, 95% of a deal, sometimes even 100% for a sponsor that this was maybe our fourth or fifth deal with them. So the idea of going that high up the cost chart didn't scare us. The second thing was I was looking around and seeing that there was very, very uh, little good competition. There are very good lenders in our space, but there's not enough of them. And I realized that if you could go out there and carve out a little niche for yourself, you know, you would have people falling over themselves um, to give you their business. And, and, you know, again, you still have to earn it. You still have to work hard for it. But that's what we that's what we discovered. So when we created Satanta um, and a debt platform for developers, there were two things that we wanted to make sure that we were answering correctly. The first one was, what would we, myself and Rob, what would we have said yes to when we were on the development side? So making sure that I don't ever ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do, make sure the loan documents are fair, the whole process is fair. So simple things like if somebody says they have a two-year project, we give them a three-year loan. If they say the first lot take is going to occur in February, that's great. I trust you. I believe you. Guaranteed it will. However, let's not make it a default until maybe October, November. Like let's, let's give ourselves some padding because the next deal that has the first lot take occur as scheduled will be the first. So that's, you know, that's the, you know, the first part of this is the, you know, what would we have said yes yeah. to? And then the second part, and this is not, you know, it sounds like it's a joke, but because we had been in this industry, we'd, we'd been part of a joint venture that had put out over a billion dollars in this space. You know, we were able to go through people across the country in different markets and ask them a very simple question. What do you hate most about your lender? And as long as it didn't impact our security, at least in my opinion, we would do it. And, you know, there's some of those are simple things like making sure we fund within 10 days. Some of those are more fundamental and people think we're crazy, but we just don't have interest reserves. You know, we don't believe that an interest reserve, you know, does any benefit other than put us at odds with our borrower as to how long a project's going to take. Mm-hmm. You know, we also try to limit our fees. You know, we'll, we'll charge, you know, typically we'll charge a point and that's it. We don't have any exit fees, any annual fees, any servicing fees, any draw fees. And you know, just simple things like that. So why did we get into this space? Well, we kind of fell into it through where you know, residential development happened in 07, 08. So the fact that myself and Rob came through that was very important. Mm-hmm. But also we just looked around and we saw that this is an area that the market has and continues to misprice the risk. So as long as, you know, as, long as big institutions are not wanting to play in this space, we're happy to to reap whatever we can. Yeah, you 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 kind of built up a lot of your business around one of my favorite questions. In my day job is director of sales and customer experience, and I feel like everybody likes to ask, "What do you love about us? What do you love about us?" 
But to me, the most important question is, what do you hate? What, what, what just makes you pull your hair and teeth out, get absolutely frustrated? And then that's where you start. And if you start overcoming those and you whipped off a million of them, that's how you create a customer experience and a product that, that that's your competitive advantage, right? You, you fixed all of the problems in that space in your ecosystem. Uh, it's going to speak for itself, right? Oh, absolutely. And, we, and sometimes we forget that that hate is, is as strong as an emotion, perhaps even stronger than, than love. And, and let's be frank, it's very few borrowers who love their lender. It's very hard to get, to get someone to love you when you're charging them double you know, uh, digits on their, on their loans. But it's very, very easy to get them to hate you. And I think that that's, you know, so if we're looking at those strong emotions, you know, given that it's so easy to, uh, to, to get the hate one going, if you can steer from that or, and I, I do this, I'm very cynical, um, but, you know, know what people hate about our competitors and then specifically, you know, lean into that on our, on our phone calls or our meetings, you know, well, we actually don't do this. And, oh, did they do that? Oh, yeah, but, you know, well, we don't, you know. You know, so, like, little, little things like that that then will steer people, you know, in your, in your general direction. Yeah, a uh, big fan of that line of thinking. So I started my career as an underwriter on the long-term debt side, uh, but everything I looked at always had uh, a property sitting on top of it. We had, you know, we have at Lima one new construction financing for SFR, but again, that's, that it's not looking into a forest of trees and saying one day this land will be ready to develop on top of we're way past that point. So can you kind of walk me through, I guess, a, is there really a material difference whenever you're valuing, you know, a quarter million dollar SFR that's already built up, just got finished versus attractive land that is completely virgin, untouched, and you're going to go build 250 homes on it. So is there a material difference? And if so, what are the differences when, when you're looking at it from a valuation standpoint? Well, yeah, so there's certainly, there's, there's differences. And what, what we sort of see is, you know, where is the, is the risk? And, you know, we sort of, again, look at it, Perversely, we sort of look at it the opposite way. So whereas everybody sees land development as being the more riskier option, let's, let's you know, um, sort of take sort of an example of, you know, 250 finished homes and, a, a, you know, as you're saying, a land to develop 250. Mm-hmm. I would argue there's a, there's a different, at least a five-year uh, different risk cycle. So on those 250 homes that you're buying, you're putting out the full amount on that day one and you're fully pocketed and hopefully your assumptions are correct. If two years in, the market fundamentally evaporates or changes, or if some of your assumptions were, were, were hideously wrong, well, you're stuck with that mistake. And yes, maybe you can try and get out of it, but you were pot committed, you put your full money in, and now you're sort of riding out the consequences. Let's take the exact same example with us. We've bought the land. So maybe to, you know, to develop those finished lots for 250 homes, the lot price, the land price, maybe $2 million. And the entire project is going to cost us, you know, 15 million. So 2 million of acquisition, maybe another million of, of getting it there. And then 12 million of sort of development over phases. Well, if the market bottoms out in two years time, I don't have my full amount in there. I've only got whatever I've developed over that period of time. And I can maybe pivot into rental, pivot into sale. I can do something different with it. I can put the project in mothballs and see what I can do with it. So when we look at that, you know, we're looking at that, um, that opportunity and, and saying, okay, yes, there is risk that a builder isn't going to buy these mm-hmm. lots. And there's risk that the home price, you know, to build these homes is going to be uh, astronomically expensive. But those are all risks that we can sort of weigh size over time. But if there is a, you know, fundamental, you know, uh, nobody wants this product anymore. Somehow we've, we've invented a new way of living that we don't need homes, you know, then it's, it's, you know, we can still pivot into something different and put the project in mothballs, which you can't do when you have single-family rentals already finished. So, so interestingly, whereas you know that product is considered less risky, so it's getting sort of mid-single-digit uh, returns on its loans, and ours are getting almost double that. I would argue, and this is how we built our, our thesis, is that I'm actually taking less risk. I'm I'm allowing myself to be able to pivot and change direction. At any at any time. And again, that's some people will hear this and say, "This guy's absolutely crazy." 
It's it's land. What what is he doing? There's the, there's only one thing you can do with land, and that's build on it. As I've already mentioned, there's there's other things you can do. And again, the key thing to remember on a fifteen million dollar development, you know, your project projected peak is probably only going to be seven to eight million dollars. Whereas on a fifteen million dollar property acquisition, you've got fifteen million dollars out the door day one. That's a compelling argument. Yeah, maybe you should stop should stop doing this. I don't want other people to enter our space. So forget everything I've said. It's, it's very, very risky and nobody else. We'll keep it secret. I think it's just my mom and my sister and my wife who listen. So we're, we're good, John. No worries, no worries. So that makes sense on the valuation perspective. And the the risk view, uh, yeah, I'm quickly aligning to your side of the fence. The, the ability to pivot there is something that you don't have whenever you got a bunch of homes on top. The supply chain issues. Let's uh, touch on that 8,000 pound gorilla. Just got a mountain bike. It took over a year to get a, a bicycle effectively. It doesn't matter what you're trying to get right now. Uh, get in line and it's going to be a minute. I have a friend who got a, a Toyota Tacoma. It took two months to get it in the door. Everything, no matter how big or small, is taking forever. How has that affected your business? How has it affected the loans that you have outstanding? What are you seeing? Yeah, so it, it's, you know, one of the benefits of what we do, right, is that we are, you know, we're taking, you know, raw mm-hmm. land, though, you know, for our pro- platform, we're required to be entitled. But, you know, if, if you're a, an amateur and you're looking at a, a land that uh, is unentitled and a land that's entitled, it looks the exact same. So we're taking, we're taking a big green field. And we're putting in the infrastructure. So not to say that supply issues don't impact what we do, because there's certain uh, materials, minerals that are needed. And obviously, you know, as we're putting in asphalt or concrete, depending on the state, you know, and as we're doing you know, grading or, you know, we have you know, machines that are necessary to do that work. But we don't have the same issues that home building has because, you know, we're, we're not as material intensive as that is. For example, there's very little lumber that's needed in you know, developing lots. However, it would be foolish to say that that means that the supply issue doesn't in fact impact us at all because it absolutely does. It impacts when builders want to buy their lots, and you know that's you know builders are 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 in a gate are in a in a bind right now where they're trying to decide do they take advantage of this market, which means sort of build as quickly as possible, but that means maybe overpaying overpaying for materials, which means that your margins are a little bit lower, but your you know, you know the velocity is is higher. Or instead, are we trying to space that out? And if you're spacing it out, what does that do to lot takes that you've committed to, to taking? If you're supposed to be taking 15 a quarter, 30 a quarter, you know, but instead you only want to take five or five or ten. So it does have the potential to impact us. Um, right now, we haven't seen it impacting us because you know, our projects are too early in, which is a benefit, again, of land development, which is the loans we close today are delivering lots in a year's time. You know, fingers crossed, a lot of these supply issues are, are resolved by then, or at least uh, there's a, a new uh, solution to them or an alternative to it. So that's, again, one of the benefits to, to, you know, the length of time it takes for us to do stuff. But, you know, we do anticipate that, you know, there will be a little bit of pushback from builders. And that's just something we're going to have to work with to, you know, understand it. Like if they're still going to take 30 lots, but instead of taking 30 in, March, they want to take 10 in March, 10 in April, and 10 in May. We just need to make that you know, decision. Does that make you know, more sense? And in general, you know, both with our borrowers and with the builders, you know, we want to be good partners. So we're not looking to, you know, the, the, the benefits of coming through the development world that myself and Rob came through is we absolutely positively do not want this land back. Yeah. We do not want to be developers. You know, we're, we're developers who lend, you know, we're not, we're not, banks who are trying to understand development. But that also means that we're not so gung-ho that we're like, oh, great, we'll just foreclose and you know double our profit on it. No, we're we're gonna try everything we can to make it work with our borrowers because we, you know, we we really, really, really do not want to become developers. Again. That's a sign, uh, one of the good signs of a good honest lender, which is like, look, I I want to do this project only if it makes sense, only if it seems like you're gonna be successful because I do not want to take on projects. I don't want to have to you know, turn my accountants into project managers and give them hard hats and boots and send them out and about to go manage across the country. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's the benefit of knowing what that actually entails. So because we know what's involved in doing it, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's good, right? So it means that we know we can do it. It means that some, if, you know, if we have to take over a project, if we have to take it in internally, we can do that without farming it out. We're not running around panicking. But again, to your point, like we're, we're very straightforward. The, the ideal scenario for us is we give you money, you give us that money back plus interest, we give it to you again for another project, rinse, repeat. That's, that, is our, that is our dream scenario. I like it. We just have to figure out for, not this is not a, your company thing, this is like the, the horizontal development industry. They didn't have a good PR guy. All right, like now, now rehabs are on HGTV. I was, I was in Charlotte, uh, your neck of the woods over the weekend, and just flipping through at the hotel late at night, and a, a rehab show was on. Absolutely passed by. I'm like, that's the day job. I don't want to watch that when I'm at night. How do we get? How do we get horizontal development on HGTV TLC? Sexy it up a bit. Listen, I can tell you, the benefit of being Irish is <laughs> we know the value of land. So there's there's many there's many of uh, a family feud that has been fought over land. So so land was always sexy in Ireland. You know, it was a I'm a, I'm the son of a farmer and uh, the son of the daughter of a farmer. And my mother would constantly say, you know, they're not making any more of it. You know, you know. So it's it's all about you know the uh, you know the scarcity of it um, and the ability to have it. So if there's a there's a it's a wonderful play. It's a, it's an okay movie, but it's a wonderful play called. Um, the field um, with Richard Harris, who uh, most people now would know as the original Dumbledore, but you know, for uh, for, for the, some of us older, uh, you know, just a, a genius of, a, of an actor. But um, you know, one of his his loves, um, it's all about a little field in Kerry, and um, you know, the he's renting it, and the owner of the field wants to uh, um, sell it, and. You know, a big, burly, you know, obnoxious American comes in and overpays for it. And, you know, the, the rest of the field is the or the rest of the movie is the disastrous consequences that comes of that. So, you know, we're, you know, give, if Netflix wants to give me a couple of million dollars, I can definitely, you know, find a way of making making land, uh, land sexy. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's in our blood. We'll put in a call to read. We'll get you on the production docket. You said something at the very beginning that I want to unpack a little bit, and perhaps there's a, a history lesson in there for me, which is that we always overbuild. You said in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Walk me through that. That kind of uh, maybe I don't have enough um, history knowledge on the real estate space to to make any sense of that, that it's a, a cyclical thing, it sounds like. Yeah, the residential development is, is probably the most uh, cyclical of, of investments. Um, and it just has a sort of tried and tested, this keeps happening. And, and it doesn't just happen in America. You know, Ireland has gone through several booms. Uh, the United Kingdom has gone through several booms. Japan never really recovered from their boom. And right now we're seeing what's happening in China, which is... He's, he's going to play havoc um, with, with the economy over the next two, three years in, a, in an indirect way. But it's it's all predicated on the same thing, which is, you know, we all need a place to live. right? We have not yet decided that we're just going to roll into sort of wardrobes um, and that's where we're going to sleep. We want to have a place to live. And certainly in you know a lot of countries and cultures, specifically America, and you've got that. I want to have my own home. I want to be able to do things. I want to have the freedom. Um, you know that that owning a home or, or renting a larger unit uh, affords me. So that's that's something that's baked into into the culture as well. But when you combine that with the fact that you know it costs a lot to build, it costs you know, and that values inherently increase for a lot of people, your home is going to be the first entryway into actually earning equity, investing, making a return on your investments. Maybe you move to a second home, but you now rent it out your first home. It, it's, it's, a, it's the gateway drug for, for the mom and pop investors around there. So, but what that then leads into is sort of, as you sort of pointed out, it then leads to the TV shows around it, the culture around it, the talking about it. And everybody wants to get in. Everybody wants to, you know, see what they're doing. And it, it's just a traditional bubble. There's nothing necessarily unique about it, except for unlike maybe stock market bubbles, or tulip bubbles, you know, in the in, in historical times, everybody has some connection to a home. Either they're renting it, they're owning it, their parents were living it. You know, everyone has a connection to a home, so it makes it more pervasive and it makes you feel 
wealthier when you have one and you have your neighbors and everyone's values are increasing. So that gives a level of intoxication. And we always think that we're, this time is different. But I remember in 08, 09, saying to the bankers in the space, you know, we will never make the same mistake for at least 10 years. And that's sort of the way I like to think of it is we'll never make the same mistake until we do. Um, Or we'll find a new mistake to make. But yeah, absolutely. You're looking at 83, 84 um, housing oversupply coupled with the interest rate you know, uh, madness. Obviously, the seventies didn't have as, as much of it. Then you had, you know, the savings alone crisis of the early nineties. You had, um, you know, and then what was interesting is in two thousand two thousand one, you had the stock market fall, which should have led to sort of a recession, but didn't because all that money sort of pivoted instead into residential, which then led to a much much bigger bubble in sort of oh five, oh six, oh seven. That then, you know, obviously. Uh, peaked with 06 with the Bear Stearns Fund um, collapsing, and then 07 with, uh, you know, with sort of really the, you know, things hitting the fan, then 08 with, with Lehman. So, you know, we've got um, just sort of that history. And I think the reason we haven't seen that now is because this, you know, from 07 pricing, you know, homes that sold in 07 really only started getting their value back in 2019, 2020. That's an awful long recovery very, very unusual, variety of different factors that came into it. Mainly one being that there wasn't just enough um, developers or, or land supply. But what that ends up meaning is that we haven't hit it yet. And I do still think we're five or six years away from hitting it, but we're human. We are going to overbuild. We're going to get, we're going to convince ourselves that this time it's different. And, you know, the important thing for us is, you know, I like to say that I've got um, principles that are, you know, in ink, not pencil, you know, so we, we sort of have our little canaries and when those, you know, stop singing, I hope that we have the discipline to take our chips off the table. And maybe we're wrong, but the this industry has shown us that if left to our own devices, th- this will continue to cause problems. And I guess to give you a more clean cut, clearer answer is, you know, house prices are gone up 19% year on year. Uh, rents are going up um, 10 to 20% year on year per market. Now, if you had been underwriting to the 2018 model and you keep to that, great. This is all gravy. And then when things come back to normal, you're doing fine. But what you'll find, there's going to be a certain submarket there that's saying, well, what if this actually is the new normal? What if we can actually get these rents this time? What if entry-level housing in Charlotte should be 450 to 500,000? What if entry-level in Greenville, where you guys are, and we do a lot of work, what if entry-level there really is 400, 450? And that becomes your baseline, and that's where you put all your money in. Well, when the normal comes, that's when, you know, as the famous, famous Warren Buffett, um, you know, comment is, you know, that when the tide uh, goes out, that's when you discover, you know, who's still wearing their bathing shorts. So, you know, it's that that's what we see is there is going to be overbuild, we believe, based on, you know, what's happened over the last 40, 50 years. Yeah, that, that makes sense, especially when you lay it out over that that historical timeline and, and it's, it's almost to the clock that it seems to happen. So talk a little bit about Satanta, right? Like what does, what does y'all strike zone look like? What's, what's the, the beautiful center of strike zone with the world series upon us, the beautiful center of strike zone deal look like. So, yeah, so you're, you're, you're talking about that, that game rounders, right? That's uh, yeah. with, the, with the snipe on the ball. Yeah. And um, now it's a, uh, you know, we, we're, you know, we know that there's a, a, a gap for, for lenders in the A&D space. I think the, the hardest thing is, is for us is to try and stay disciplined. What we want to do is we want to be in the markets where people are moving to, and we want to be delivering the homes that people need. So that's entry level, next stage, perhaps a stage above that. We, we don't want to be in the luxury home area. We don't want to be in the custom home area. Not because we don't think there's a need for that. In fact, I think there's a huge need for that. And I think there's a huge gap in the sort of executive luxury rental market. As anyone who's ever tried to rent a home, you know, for 3,000 square feet or more in any market can tell you there's a, there's a lack of that. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not knocking that as a, as a model. I think it, it's, it's very real. But this is more of a philosophical thing. We, we want to be doing as much good as we can. And we want to be able to give people... Um, you know, as many people a start into home ownership as possible. And 
best way of doing that is by being able to provide affordable housing. So it's it's a it's the area that we want to be in. And again, there's a there's a capitalist, you know, greedy, selfish bent to that as well, which is, you know, those are the areas that, you know, are less, you know, impacted by interest rates because as some people drop out of buying it, others sort of come into mm-hmm. it. So, you know, there it's it's not completely selfless. But at the same time, you know, we do like to be in that area. And we do think that, that sort of fulfills a big ESG component as well of uh you know, sort of making sure that we're giving something back to sort of the society that's out there and, you know, and, and making sure that we're, we're having a positive impact. As far as what, you know, our strike zone, you know, we want, we'll do loans as low as $2 million. Um, We recently, just last week, we closed the $73 million deal. And previously, we've closed the $40 million deal in the D.C. market. But we've also, and this is what I like about our platform is, you know, that the same week that we closed the $73 million deal in Greensboro, we closed an $11 million deal in Houston. This week, we're going to be closing a um, you know, $3.5 million deal in North Carolina as well. So I like the fact that we're not we're not only wanting to do the bigger deals, which everybody's chasing. Right. We recognize that it's actually more difficult to get a $5 million loan than a $50 million loan. So We'll do as low as two from a land development. That typically is going to be a minimum of 18 to 20 units. Okay. And we like it to be contiguous. And then we don't really have a limit on, on what we can do as long as it, it fits within what our borrowers are able to do. We want our borrowers to have some level of experience, but we also understand that 07, 08 wiped out um, a lot of um, experience in this space. And um, so, you know, the, you're by necessity you're going to have to work with younger uh, developers so we don't hold that um against them and you know we're looking for people that we can do repeat business with we don't do rofos or exclusivities but we want to make sure that if we do a good job and we we do what we say we're going to do i want to know that i can get yours there's more business to get and that you know that's that's really our key point and one of the things i'm most proud about is you know we're on our fourth and fifth deal with some borrowers we're actually um, if uh, if uh, folks down in Charleston ever um, get some certain plans um, uh, approved for our borrowers, you know, we'll be doing our eighth and ninth deal um, with with certain borrowers. So you know we love the fact that we're getting that repeat business, and it's um, you know we we want our land to be entitled. We want it to be under contract to a builder or to a build for rent or self built if it's a if it's a private uh, developer. Mm-hmm. And you know we'll what makes us different is we do eighty five percent LTC, and that's where we start. We start at 85%. We're only going less than that if there's a big deposit or if our borrowers, for whatever reason, have equity that they want to, you know, you know to earn some more on or they want to just keep the, the interest sort of down. But, you know, by and large, we're starting at, at 85. And, you know, where we, you know, if you want to pivot into this, where, you know, we know A&D very, very well. We, we like it and we've understood it. We, we're not scared by it. We had flirted with, uh, did we want to sort of be in the vertical space? Because there is sort of a, a, a gap there specifically for a bill for rent where traditional banks who maybe were only financing five starts a month are now having understandable heartburn of doing 15 to 20 a month. So, you know, understanding the velocity is, is important. So we flirted with that, but then we very quickly realized that we know A&D and sort of the, the funny thing is, uh, this was a conversation that sort of started us uh, talking with Lima One, which is, you know, the, all the things that you don't know about land development or scare you mm-hmm. about land development or make you wary, we share the exact same sentiment to vertical. And it was a, it was a wonderful conversation when I was talking with your uh, colleague, Josh Craig, about all of that stuff. And he's like, oh, no, we understand that. It's, it's the land part that we don't have anything to do with. So it, it quickly seemed that it would make sense that, you know, to take advantage of this, if we could sort of team up with someone who knew the vertical side, you know, to sort of complement our A&D side. Yeah, I remember the first time Josh, my colleague, and uh, I report up to Josh at Lima One. First time he mentioned, uh, didn't mention by name, it was so early stage, but so we're talking to a land A&D company based out of Charlotte, and you know, perked up because of everything you and I hashed out in this conversation here. Like, what a unicorn financing outfit, really. And uh, one of the more beautiful symbiotic relationships of we specialize in something that you, you know, don't have an interest in because you specialize in something. The same is true on your end. You do what you do. You know it well. And it's something that just made sense from the get go. It's one of those partnerships that uh, you don't have to expend a lot of brain power seeing how it works and benefits everybody and being able to provide 
an end-to-end financing solution of, hey, if you have you know land that's entitled and you need to go from A to B to then go from B to fully vertical, that option is out there. And that's that's one of the tougher things to to piece together financing wise. Uh, I think arguably in the entire real estate investing sphere, at least in in this country. So it is a beautiful thing, and it only only helps that y'all are an hour and a half, two hours away from us. So uh, some good southeastern headquartered outfits hashing it out. That's certainly, and it's it, what what was was great about it is it, it, it you know. The response that we've heard from the market, the response we've heard from our own borrowers and from talking with your borrowers is, is really that. It's 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 not just that it's a one-stop shop, or as I like to say, it's a two-stop shop for one option. You yeah. know, so you can talk to two different groups to get sort of a you know one facility. But what's what's great about it is um you know, because we're experts in our area, we're not necessarily compromising on what we don't or, or, or do know and you know not not casting aspersions on, on any other groups because i actually don't think that there's many or any that that really can offer you know uh, soup to nuts uh land acquisition to finished home and and beyond because obviously you guys also do on the rental side and, and stabilized uh, financing as well so you know there's very few people who do that but you know we can bring our areas of expertise, so we can bring the expertise to the A and D side, and then smoothly transition it behind the scenes um, to you guys, so you can sort of run with it on the vertical side. And you know, the borrower is getting both the benefit of the of our experiences, but also actually our experiences, so that we're not, you know, you're not trying to work out is this normal for A and D, or should I, you know, over uh, course correct? And we're not taking undue risk on the vertical side, or, or similarly. Um, being too cautious because we don't know what's industry norm. So it's it, it's a very very good uh, fitting, and it, you know it, it sort of is uh, is natural. Uh, you know, I, I do try to find, uh, and it was great when I spoke to Josh. You know, to find somebody who sort of shares your values, has similar ideas that that you have, but also that you can sort of uh, sort of have a true symbiotic relationship where you're where you're not actually competing with each mm-hmm. other really for anything at all in this relationship certainly not and you know it goes back to when i was a when i was a kid you know uh you know i i sort of trained myself to eat the the chocolate candies that other people didn't because that meant that whenever i went to somebody's house you know there was always you know a, an excess of the uh it was typically orange cream and coffee cream but you know that's uh you know that that's sort of my mindset is if, you know goes back to why we're even doing land development if i find something that nobody wants to do that i like and then I can sort of team up with our people so that we can you know, go through the whole tin together. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I love that. I, it reminds me of in college, how I got into bourbon, right? I, I realized that if you have beer in the fridge, that's just going to mystically disappear. Like the fridge taxes the beer every day that goes by, there's less beer in the fridge. You're like, what, what? I'm, I'm drinking, I drink, you know, at college, drink a couple and then two times as many are gone the next day. The mystical thing. But that bourbon would sit on the shelf and nobody would touch it. And it was an acquired taste for me. I, I don't know if there's anyone who like drinks uh, a, a, a bourbon and immediately is uh, as a, a, a late, I don't know, we'll, we'll say 21, but in college and, <laughs> and goes, uh, oh, this is delicious stuff. Like it was definitely an acquired taste. And I remember... Uh, we had a snowstorm down here. You know, if we get if we get two inches of snow, the state shuts down. Uh, same thing with the college campus. And there were a couple of days that we were kind of confined more or less to the to the apartments, and just a plentiful supply of bourbon. Uh, eventually, some people broke down and were like, "It's alcohol. We gotta we gotta drink it. We we don't have any beer. We have no other options." <laughs> so it became a scarcity thing, but. Uh, I like the the candy and bourbon corollary there. Well, certainly. And if I can just say, obviously, I'm I'm a big fan of bourbon, um, but I'm a bigger fan of uh, of Irish whiskey. And if you like bourbon, Irish whiskey is is a natural progression. We don't have any of that. Well, there are some peaty Irish whiskeys, but we're we're very you know very much on the smooth side. Not at all like Scotch. I'm not a Scotch drinker. I do not like Scotch. Love Irish whiskey. Um, you know if. Uh, there are many brands, but you know, Redbreast. If you can get yourself a good bottle of Redbreast at twelve or, or twenty-one, it's uh, it's well worth the investment. 
Uh, but again, I'm uh, you know the unofficial uh, whiskey uh, ambassador, certainly in the in the Charlotte market. I'm, I'm always pushing on people, and, and typically after we've closed our second deal with you, um, you know, a bottle of, of whiskey should be you know making its way to you at some point. I love it, and if it is a bottle of Redbreast Twelve, it is incredible. I I also not a Scotch fan, just don't like it. Uh, bourbon, a friend of mine, a colleague here. Uh, I think he got gifted a bottle of Redbreast 12 and I was just naysaying it. I was like, this is, this non-American swill. There's no way this is good. And <laughs> I love it. I, I always keep a bottle on rotation. Uh, Redbreast 12, I think is a spectacular, if you like bourbon, uh, maybe you don't like scotch, you're looking to get a little, uh, to the other East coast, then uh, you can't get a better recommendation. The price point on Redbreast 12 is beautiful as well. Uh, a great a great yeah. value. One thing I hate about, uh, really hate, we're invoking those strong emotional words again, is how, <laughs> how some bourbons over the last six, seven years to date has become so hard to get a hold of. Things like Blanton's, uh, you just go down the list. Eagle Rare, bottles that on the yep. shelf, E.H. Uh, e. Taylor is another one of my favorites that are in that 40 to 60 price range. They have higher tiers, but their base uh, bourbons are not not anything crazy, but impossible to get. We have a total wine near us, and you, know, you have to spend a bazillion on wine. So my wine spend gets me the chance to enter into a lottery to then win a bottle of one of 25 different ones and fingers crossed. uh, It's just become a nightmare to keep particular bourbons in in stock in the home. No, 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 it's ridiculous. And actually um, I I forgot that you guys have the the benefit of not being in a, in a regulated state like uh, North Carolina, the great state of North Carolina. Um, But the, um, yeah, if I can give you another uh, recommendation that you can get in, in, uh, in uh, Till Wine is, uh, is Three Swallows. It's Powers, Three Swallows. It's it's made by the exact same people who make Redbreast, so it's the exact same people. Sort of like the uh, you know, the, the Blantons and uh, you know, where they're all sort of made out of the same um, Buffalo Trace uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. distilleries. But made by the exact same people, typically a bottle knock you back by $40. $40. So Three Swallows, Powers, well, you know, it's about 40 to 45 you know, um, and it's, you know, it's just good. It's, it's, it's an Irish single pot still. So it is different than, than traditional whiskey. It's different than Jameson. Um, you know, it's a special, it's a unique whiskey style that uh, the Irish brought in when the, uh, the English, uh, at the time that they were, uh, the colonial power, um, they, uh, brought in a tax on malt, malt of barley, um, really to impact on the Scots and the, the Irish and the Scots being the Scots, just, you know, rolled over and took it. Um, whereas the uh, Irish, being more creative, decided, well, what if we did half malted, half unmalted, therefore only paying half the tax? And they experimented with it until they found something that tasted good, and that's that's what Redbreast is. So Redbreast is actually not like um, scotch or bourbon at all. It's a half malt, half unmalted uh, process. Typical. The Irish trying to figure out how to evade taxes for hundreds of years. What is this? <laughs> no, no. I, I would say the Irish trying to deliver, you know, uh, good, affordable products, you know, both in the 1800s to today. There you go. That, that's the good PR spin to it. Uh, while we're <laughs> on this topic, if you'll indulge, if, if you were confined to only being able to have one bottle uh, on tap at your house, from here till kingdom come of of alcohol, what would it be? Um, my mine is E. H. Taylor small batch. Like I, I just the taste just hits all the points for me. I have I have some you know, higher tier bourbon, if you would, but I think that's something I drank at just a particular time in my life a lot, and really it just hits the mark for me. What's what's yours? If you only had to pick one. So for me, I sort of, you know, uh, obviously I'll cheat and sort of pick two, but like one, one I've already mentioned, which is Redbreast 21. And I, and I love that. Now in Ireland, you can get that for about 140, 150 euro, maybe $175. For some bizarre reason, I don't know why it's three to $400 in the, in the United States. So it, it's a very, very good value at that mm-hmm. price, not at, at the US yeah. price, but it's, it's absolutely delicious. It's again, it's single pot still, and it has that sort of caramel chocolate toffee t- 
taste, which which I you know I am partial to. But if not Redbreast Twenty One, um, I would go for the Middleton Barry Crockett. Um, again, similar single pot still. Um, it's but it's more of a blend of different age uh, statements, so it can be as as low as twelve, as high as thirty, um, and it just blends to just a, an excellent sort of perfection. So if if I'm stuck with that, you know, and that, again, that's going to be a higher end bottle. Um, if I have to pay for it myself. I'll probably go for the powers, you know, with the with the forty forty five euro uh, dollar uh, bottle. But if uh, if somehow the whiskey gods are just reinstalling this every day, <laughs> then you know the the Barry Crockett would be the Middleton Barry Crockett would be the way to go. I love it. I love it. Yeah, the the who's footing the bill uh, th- that does have a way of, of swaying opinion one way or the other for sure. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to only have one option and it's a four four hundred dollar bottle and that's all the soil you have in the house. That could be a problem, an expensive exactly. habit. Exactly. I can think of no better note to end on uh, than alcohol. <laughs> uh, if people want to get in touch with you, it's satantadc.com. Is that right? Yeah, so Satanta Development Capital. So the website is satantadc, D for dogs, C for cats, uh, .com. And, you know, and myself and, and Rob are the two best people to get a hold of. We, we take sort of our borrowers very you know seriously and importantly. So John, J-O-H-N, at satantadc.com. Rob R O B at stantadc.com. You'll you'll get us and you'll get our attention and you know we've we've got a great team with us uh, in in Charlotte and you know we'll we'll hand it off but we we certainly like to spend you know those initial conversations with our borrowers and make make sure it's a good fit. We've got the same philosophy. You know we've you know we'll we'll turn down deals if we don't think that there's a long term play here. We don't want to be somebody's you know I was stuck. Nobody else would answer my call. Take it if. Uh, in you know we, we want someone who we can actually build a relationship with but yeah that's that's the best way to get a hold of us. beautiful hey john thank you so much for carving out some time to chat with me i, I learned a ton and i have uh, a new shopping list for total wine this weekend it's an absolute pleasure i've been listening to uh, the other podcast i think it's uh it's been very very interesting it's a nice diverse uh listening i i, I got you know anywhere from sort of saving uh you know, Reg D to uh, understanding that, you know, uh, the, an asset, favorite asset is the one that makes you money. So, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a very interesting, um, you know, podcast series. I'm, I'm honored uh, to, to uh, be a part of it and, um, you know, best, uh, best look with it. It can, you know, continued good success. You're, you're far too kind. I, I greatly appreciate that, John. Thank you so much. No worries. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.